Hey, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. This week we're bringing you part one of a two-part show with farmer, anarchist, organiser and author Eric McBeigh, who's being interviewed by Burse from The Final Straw Radio about his book Full Spectrum Resistance, which provides a really fascinating in-depth study on building movements, actions and strategies for change. And this audio has been sourced with thanks from Final Straw Radio at thefinalstrawradio.noblogs.org. You're on occupied Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee land, right? That's correct, yes. Cool. And this is uh, Salagi and Creek land where I'm calling you from. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, what stuff you're farming, for instance, and what sorts of organizing you're involved in? So I farm just east of Kingston, Ontario. We have a vegetable CSA farm community supported agriculture. We grow about 40 or 50 different varieties of vegetables, and we provide those to about 250 households in our area. We do kind of a sliding scale to make it more accessible to people. And we normally host a lot of different educational events and workshops, but of course, most of those are on pause right now. In terms of community activism or community engagement, I have worked on many different causes over the years. Uh, I've worked with militant conservation organizations like Sea Shepherd or doing tree sets. I've been a labor organizer. I've been a farm organizer. Uh, I've helped start community gardens. A lot of the work that I do right now is about climate justice and about other issues that are topical uh, at different times in my area, especially prisons and housing right now. Prisoners' issues continue to be very important, and I think that the situation with COVID has only kind of highlighted the ways in which prisoners are are treated unfairly and in which the prison system actually makes us less safe, um, makes our society more dangerous rather than less so. So you've been thinking and working around big picture ecological survival and, as you said, like ecological justice Can you give a kind of a quick snapshot of where the civilization is in terms of destroying the Earth's capacity to carry complex life? So right now we are in the middle of of really a mass extinction on this planet. And industrial activity, industrial extraction has destroyed something like 95% of the big fish in the ocean, has fragmented huge amounts of tropical forest and deforested many tropical areas, including much of the Amazon at this point. But it's really climate change that's kind of that global critical problem. The temperature has already gone up nearly one degree from the kind of pre-industrial norm. But the emissions that human industry have put into the atmosphere, the greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane, are already enough to set us on a path of significantly greater warming. That's even if we stopped driving cars or burning coal today. And so that produces a bunch of different challenges. Of course, we're going to see already more and more hot weather, heat waves, more extreme storms happening more frequently. In the long term, The outlook is potentially very grim. We could be looking at not just one or two degrees of warming, but potentially five or six degrees of warming 
by the end of the century. And that produces a very different world from the one that we live in. Even two degrees of warming would be enough to essentially wipe out uh, all of the coral reefs on the planet, to wipe out entire biomes. And we're at the point where even relatively conservative international organizations understand that climate change could displace hundreds of millions of people, create hundreds of millions of climate refugees around the world. And there's never been any displacement like that. You know, when you talk about making a place where where potentially billions of people live, much harder to live in and much harder to grow food in. You know, we've seen things like the so-called Arab Spring, for example, and the situation in Syria where those areas of unrest or those uprisings were triggered in part by prolonged droughts and agricultural failures. And we have seen the streams of refugees coming from those places has really increased the amount of xenophobia and racism, I think, that a lot of people on the right feel comfortable demonstrating. So the ecological crisis is not just about fish and trees. It's really about the kind of society that we're going to have in the future for human beings. Are we going to have a society where... Fascism is considered kind of a necessary response to streams of of refugees moving from equatorial areas as kind of local economies collapse. Are we going to see an even greater resurgence of racism in order to justify that? Are we going to see a much more draconian police response to deal with the unrest and uprisings that could happen? So our future, our future in terms of justice and human rights, really depends on us dealing effectively with climate change in the short term. Because climate change is not something that we can kind of ignore and come back to in in 20 or 30 or 40 years. There's a real lag effect that the emissions now, those are going to cause warming for decades or even centuries. And the response is really non-linear. So what I mean by that is if you double the amount of greenhouse gases that you're putting out, that doesn't necessarily double the, the temperature impact. There are many tipping points. So as the Arctic ice melts in the Arctic Ocean and that white snow turns to kind of a darker sea, then that is going to absorb more sunlight, more solar energy and accelerate warming. It's the same thing in the Amazon rainforest. The Amazon rainforest creates its own climate, creates its own rainfall and clouds. So you can easily hit a point where the entire forest is suddenly put into drought and starts to collapse. So we really need to prevent those tipping points from happening and to act as quickly as possible to prevent catastrophic climate change, because it's going to be almost impossible to deal with in a fair way once that happens. And that's really the idea of climate justice, right? That the impacts of global warming are disproportionately put on people of color, on low-income people, on, on poorer countries. And so if we want to have a fairer future, then that means those of us who are living in more affluent economies have a responsibility to reduce those emissions, those of us who have more affluent lifestyles, the main responsibility to deal with that, to produce a future as well that is fairer and just and where human rights are still important. It seems like with these imminent and emergent threats, 
resolving this and working towards working together with everyone is the best option. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true. And I think one of the reasons that I'm interested in organizing around climate justice is because it's one of the ultimate areas of common ground, right? It kind of connects people who are in many different places and working on many different struggles. Because activists who I work with, who are mostly anti-racist activists, understand why this is important. I mean, we're already seeing that impact around the world. And activists who work on food security and hunger, I mean, it's totally clear why climate change is important, because our ability to grow food in the future depends on avoiding catastrophic climate change. When I'm working with anti-authoritarians, it's the same thing. So I really do see climate justice as an important movement building issue, something that can connect a lot of causes that might seem more disparate from kind of a distance. Your most recent and huge two-part book was entitled Full Spectrum Resistance. And the first subtitle was Building Movements and Fighting to Win, and the second was Action and Strategies for Change. Can you share what you mean by full spectrum resistance and what you hope these books will bring to the table for folks organizing to not only stop the destruction of complex life on Earth, but to increase the quality of our survival and our, our living together? I wrote this book because I've been an activist for more than 20 years, and almost all of the campaigns that I worked on, we were losing ground, right? I mean, that was the case for many environmental struggles, but also in struggles around the gap between the rich and poor or around many other things. But I saw in history and around the world many examples of movements that had been incredibly successful. And the fact that a lot of the rights that people take for granted today, a lot of our human rights come from movements that learned really valuable lessons about how to be effective. And so full spectrum resistance is an idea that I think encapsulates some of the key characteristics that successful movements need to have, especially when they want to move beyond a single issue or a local concern. One of those components of, of full spectrum resistance is a diversity of tactics. I think that's really critical. The vast majority of tactics that movements have used in the past, right? Successful movements like the civil rights movement or the suffragists or the movement against apartheid in South Africa, they used a huge range of tactics. I mean, they certainly used things like petitions and awareness raising tool at different times. But they also used tactics that allowed them to generate political force and disruption. So a lot of people don't realize that, you know, to win the right to vote, suffragist movements used property destruction and arson quite frequently. When people are talking about Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement, you know, people often use Nelson Mandela, ironically, as a reason why we shouldn't be disruptive. They think of him as this really peaceful guy because he spent close to 30 years in prison. But Nelson Mandela helped to create the underground armed wing of the African National Congress. That was a struggle that used armed self-defense and sabotage extensively in South Africa. And allies used all kinds of economic disruption, especially divestment around the world to try to pressure the South African government. So if we stick to only one tactic, then that really limits our ability to escalate and that limits our ability to adapt. It's easy for those in power to understand how to undermine one tactic if it's the only one that we use. 
I think another aspect of full spectrum resistance is cooperation. Those in power can stay in power through divide and conquer, right? That's one of their primary tools is to split resistance movements or social movements into different manageable chunks like militants and moderates. And they can just go ahead and arrest, you know, a small group of militants in the street if they're able to separate those people. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Let me give you an example of how a diversity of tactics and this cooperation can work. One of the movements that I talk about or one of the campaigns that I talk about in the book is an anti-apartheid group that organized in New York City at Columbia University in the 1980s. And they were an organization that was trying to get Columbia University to stop investing in companies that did business in South Africa, right? Columbia University, like many universities, had big endowments, big investments. And there is this group, it was called the Committee for a Free South Africa at Columbia University. And they started with kind of the classic strategy of awareness raising. So they held discussion groups and teach-ins about apartheid. They had, you know, petitions to try to convince the government of Columbia University to divest from South Africa. And they really did everything that you were supposed to do, right? They did all of the things that were kind of told, told that we are supposed to do in order to succeed. They built that public awareness and understanding and they hit a wall. They got to the point where the administration and the faculty and student representatives in the student government, all voted for divestment, but the top level of government, the board of trustees, overruled them. And I think that that point that they reached is a, a point that a lot of our struggles eventually meet, right? Where we've done the things that we're supposed to do, but still those in power refuse to do what is right. And it was a real turning point for those anti-apartheid organizers. And their attendance at events started to decrease after that because, well, people thought, hey, the struggle is over, the board of trustees isn't going to divest, so what can you do? We just lost this one. But those organizers, they weren't willing to just give up. They realized they needed to escalate to win. And so they decided to plan a series of disruptive simultaneous actions. They started a hunger strike and they took over a building. They blockaded a building on campus and said, we're not going to go anywhere until Columbia University divests. And this was a big risk for them, right? Because they'd seen this declining participation. But it actually worked. They started with a handful of people at this blockade and more and more people started coming. There's this fascinating statistic about this campaign before the blockade, only 9% of the student body considered themselves at least somewhat active in that campaign for divestment. So only 9% had shown up to a rally or, you know, signed a petition. But in the weeks to come, 37% of the entire student body participated in that blockade by joining rallies or by sleeping overnight on the steps. That campaign worked. Columbia University eventually did give in and did agree to divest. And that shows to us, you know, the value of a diversity of tactics, the value of disruption, the value of cooperation between people who are using different kinds of tactics. 
Another key part of full spectrum resistance is that solidarity between movements to avoid the divide and conquer tactics that those in power try to use. And the fourth thing is really an intersectional approach is to try to synthesize the different ideas and the different philosophies that motivate different campaigns and that motivate different movements. Because we're in a time when I don't think single issue campaigns can succeed anymore, certainly in the context of climate change, but also in the context of rising authoritarianism. We need to look at how we can build that shared analysis build genuine intersectionality in order to create movements that are truly powerful and effective. How does the anecdote of Colombia uh, and the resistance there fit into a wider scope of looking at governments and the ecological destruction that they're involved with? One of the biggest challenges of the climate justice movement is the way that climate change and fossil fuel emissions, it all just feels so overwhelming and so diffuse. It's hard to figure out where should we actually focus our energy. But I think that many or most movements in history at some point faced a similar problem, right? There are a bunch of things that we can and should do to help address problems that seem really overwhelming or diffuse. And one of them, of course, is just to keep building our movements and to keep building our capacity and our connections. Because as long as we feel like we are kind of isolated individuals or or isolated pockets of resistance, it's hard for us to see how we can tackle bigger problems. And that isolation is not an accident. Any authoritarian power especially wants to keep people divided and distrustful. So it's important that we build cultures of resistance, that we build real connections with each other and that we celebrate movements in the past that have won so that we can kind of build up our capacity. And I think it's also important to look for areas where we can have early win Areas where the problem is not as diffuse, but where the problem is more, is much more concrete or much more tangible. A great example of both of those things would be some of the mobilization against fossil fuel that has happened in so-called Canada in recent years. So in February and, and March of 2020, we saw some of the biggest indigenous solidarity mobilizations in Canadian history. And those were kind of provoked by a particular flashpoint on the West Coast. So there's a settlement called Duunastodon, which is on a pipeline route. There's a site where the Canadian government and a variety of oil companies have been trying to build a series of pipelines to the West Coast so that oil and fracked natural gas can be exported. And the indigenous people who live there, the Wet'suwet'en, the traditional hereditary leaders have been very committed for many years to stop that from happening and have essentially built this community on the pipeline route to assert their traditional rights and to assert their indigenous sovereignty. And in February, at the beginning of February 2020, the government sent in a large armed force 
to try to kind of smash through different checkpoints that indigenous communities had set up on the route leading to the site on the road, and also to destroy the gate that was keeping oil workers from going in and working on the construction of this pipeline. And the community there had been really good at building a culture of resistance over years, not just amongst indigenous people, but among settler allies uh, across the country. And so when that raid began, there was a really powerful response from many different communities. So a Mohawk community located just west of Mitaindanega, they decided to blockade the major east-west rail line that runs through Ontario, and, and that is kind of a bottleneck for the entire country. And other Indigenous communities started to do this as well, to set up rail blockades. And essentially, the entire rail network of Canada was shut down for weeks. You know, there were massive transportation backlogs and there were other disruptive actions as well. Things like blockades of bridges, including international bridges, blockades and slowdowns of highways. And there was all of this mobilization that a year or two ago seemed inconceivable. It seemed impossible that any kind of disruption would be able to happen on that scale because nothing like that had happened before. And it was a really powerful movement that did cause the government to back off and cause the police to back off and start these new negotiations. That example of the Wet'suwet'en solidarity and the disruption around it really points the way to potential successes and potentially more effective styles of organizing for the climate justice movement. They didn't just wait around for kind of a spontaneous uprising to happen, which I think almost never happens. They had built these connections over many years and built capacity and people had trained each other and trained themselves. And they had a particular location that they were trying to protect, right? So it wasn't just, let's go out and protect the entire world and protect all people. You know, it's hard to mobilize movements around something that's so vague. But there was a particular community of a particular group of indigenous people on a particular spot. And I think it's much easier to mobilize folks around tangible sites of conflict like that. The last thing that they did that was really effective is that they turned the weakness of having to fight against this diffuse industrial infrastructure into a strength. Instead of just saying, oh, well, there's so many pipelines, there's so many rail lines, there's so many highways, nothing we can do is going to make any difference. The movement kind of said, hey, there are all of these pipelines and rail lines and highways that are basically undefended and that we can go and disrupt, even if it's only for a day or two. This actually gives us the potential to cost oil companies a lot of money and to cost the economy a lot of money, because that's often what it boils down to, right, is can we cost a corporation or a government more than they're getting from doing this bad thing? 
One of our continuing challenges with those in power is that they always consider profit more important than life, right? They always consider profit more important than human safety and human well-being. And that applies whether we're talking about incarceration or COVID or climate change or police departments. And because of that, those in power are almost never convinced or persuaded by arguments to do the right thing. And if we look at those historical movements, we have been given a really sanitized kind of false narrative about how things like the civil rights movement worked or the suffragettes or the suffragists rather. We're told, hey, the, you know, the civil rights movement just finally convinced people because people like uh, Martin Luther King were willing to risk getting beaten up. And that's what changed things. But <laughs> that is not primarily what changed the people who are in positions of power, right? The racism, especially in the southern states and segregation, that didn't end because of the civil rights movement giving a good example. It was dismantled essentially because of different kinds of force, political force and sometimes physical force. I think people also forget that a lot of the nonviolent demonstrations, those civil rights demonstrations in the South were protected by armed groups like the Deacons for Defense. The Deacons for Defense were uh, an armed group before the Black Panthers that was in many cases made up of military veterans, black military veterans, who decided that they were tired of seeing civil rights marches getting attacked by the KKK or the police and said, we're going to use our right to bear arms and we're going to go down there and defend people. And so a lot of the nonviolent actions that happened were, were protected by armed civil rights activists. So these sorts of things get written out of, of the history, especially by those in power, because those in power want to seem like the good guys, right? And I think that ignorance of social movement struggle is a form of white privilege. Marginalized communities understand better how to deal with those in power, how to get rights and how to protect your rights. And that's often through social movements and through struggle. And so when we have situations like we have now with growing authoritarianism, much more obvious racism, the climate emergency, people who are in positions of privilege, especially, you know, middle class white men, they find themselves at a loss because they don't know that movement history. So they don't know how to respond. And it's often movements of color, movements of marginalized people. Those are the movements that are going to teach us how to deal with these deep systems of injustice, these deep systems of inequality. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And today on the show, we heard part one of a two-part interview with farmer, anarchist, organiser and author Eric McBeigh about his book, Full Spectrum Resistance. And this audio was sourced with thanks from The Final Straw Radio at thefinalstrawradio.noblogs.org. And we'll bring you part two of this interview in a couple of weeks' time. And you can find today's podcast and the links at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we'd love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word? 
Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. So that's all for this week, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at commonslibrary.org. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.